Out of the box. Meet people through their music. With Ash Berdebez on FBI. Happy Thursday and welcome to another show of Out of the Box. We're back in the studio this week. Last week we were at Carriage Works and it was an absolute ball. Thank you to Stephen for taking the past three hours of tunes. Luckily, this time we got to sit around and enjoy them all. And if you want to check out any of the tracks that he played, you can go onto the FBI web- website and go to Programs and Playlists, Mornings with Stephen Ferris, and he's listed them all there for you to check in on. And uh, today on the show, we've got Dr. Astrid Larange, who is a doctor of the poet Gertrude Stein. She's also an associate lecture- lecturer at the College of Fine Arts, a researcher, teacher, poet, book indexer, essayist, and sometimes even a muso and an award-winning homebrew. Astrid has written two excellent books of poetry, Eating and Speaking and Minor Dogs, and a PDF book with a pretty catchy title. It's uh, Pussy, 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 What, What, Ole Day, Ole Day. It's a pleasure to have her on the show today to pick her brain, because she's got a good one, and some sweet music to boot. Thank you for joining us on the show today, Astrid. Thank you so much for having me. So what kind of stuff do we have here today in terms of music? We've got a good little little mix um, lined up, some Arthur Russell and some Broadcast and some Cocteau Twins and Felt and, yeah, some synthy things and things that I thought were indicative of the last couple of years of my listening habits. Yeah, because we had you on the show. Well, not we personally. My producer and I were not around when this happened, but a few years ago you appeared on Out of the Box as well. But we wanted you on the show again because you've done so much since then and completely new music this time, which is good. And so the first track we've got is by Arthur Russell. Why this one? I love this song so much. I heard it on a mix once um, and didn't know who it was, didn't see the track listing and just thought it was one of those romantic moments where I'd never hear it again. And then I heard it again a couple of years later and just um, since then have been a mad Arthur Russell fan. And I um, was listening to this album one day when I was reading Gertrude Stein's um, poem, Arthur of a Grammar, and my friends texted me to say that they'd had a, a baby and his name was Arthur. So I thought... This is it. This is the song. It's adorable. (laughs) So this is called Arm Around You, calling out a context that came out in 04, and you're listening to Out of the Box on FBI. I'm doing it right next to you 
4.5 a track there from Arthur Russell Arm Around You is the name of that one and today my guest Astrid Larange brought that one in thank you Astrid no worries now you're a poet yes and I, I read in an article that you uh, wrote that got published in Das Super Paper that to be a poet is an embarrassing thing and that's the best reason I can think of to continue being one can you explain what you mean by that <laughs> Yeah, I think I think poetry is it is an embarrassing form and an embarrassing practice and I'm not quite sure exactly why, but I think it has to do with the fact that it's small and often minor and it's attached to people's um it has histories with people to do with um high school or confessions or feelings or emotions or privacy, secrecy, all of these things that are ripe territory for embarrassment and, and um thinking about embarrassment. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that when someone introduces me as a poet or if I say I'm a poet, it's it's a really weird thing to do and it makes me feel funny in precisely the way that embarrassment makes you feel. Yeah, and it makes people picture you just like with the lights on in bed, writing a little book yeah, and then shoving it under the mattress. Exactly. It's a really <laughs> daggy thing. And I think often the, the things that I do with language are not necessarily easily identified mm-hmm. as poetry, but I think the the to be a poet or the identity of the poet is um it it should be celebrated for its embarrassment not not avoided i like that idea and another thing that i read that you wrote is and i, I think this is kind of poignant poets don't write poems per se they're just people that are willing to be responsible for what poems do so one of the main things that you do in life is poetry and you're not in control of that is that is that part of the reason you're interested in poetry? Yeah, definitely. And I think that, I mean, there's lots of different types of modes of poetry and ways that people go about doing it. But for my part, I definitely try and write in such a way that it's less about conceiving and imagining and creating poetic forms and more about just going around, picking things up, putting them in different rela- relations, um, trying out new combinations of things, negotiating or hacking my way through various paths of materials and, and words. So I think in that sense, there's less about me actually writing these things from within me and more about me gathering them together and being willing to yeah, take responsibility for what they then get up to in the world. It's more like language remixing. Yeah, and I think it's important because I think it's important to not imagine possessing language in any sort of real sense. And I think it's more interesting to imagine just being the guardian for certain moments in language. And that's that can be both exciting and sometimes fraught, depending on what your poems get up to. <laughs> hopefully good things. Yeah, exactly. Um, hopefully your poems don't get up to anything sinister. That's what <laughs> yeah, you mean. No, no. <laughs> Um, I like the idea that when you first, I mean, you got like a rekindled interest in poetry when you started going to noise-related events, kind of experimental electronic music events. How how did that kind of 
relationship between poetry and experimental music make sense to you? Well, I think, yeah, I started to think about those kinds of other types of aesthetic modes that were dealing with things like um, abstraction or um, broken systems or corruptions or drones or infinity loops or think anything that, I mean, I think the most interesting thing about noise and sound um, works or events are that they uh, they force a different type of listening or they force um, a certain type of emphasis on thinking about listening as something which is possible and I think that the poetry that I like and the poetry that I try to write does the same thing with language and forces the same kind of intervention into thinking about reading so for me there's more of an affinity between those two practices than there is than for example um, the type of poetry I'm interested in and then older or more classical forms of poetry. Mm-hmm. So the the easing that is the the meaning that is easily made is not necessarily interesting to you. I mean, yeah, this is the question that I always, um, I guess, struggle with a bit. Is the question of meaning, and a meaning is great, and it's around, and it happens all the time. You can't stop meaning from happening. But I'm more interested in those meanings that are emergent or contingent, rather than those that are habituated or you know, I don't know, um, historicized. And and so I think that. That's why I really am interested in those types of aesthetic practices that just open up a space for different types of events to occur. And they'll all be meaningful, but that's not not necessarily the end game. Uh, we've got another track to take here, and it's one from Jay Diller. Thanks for bringing this one in. It's called Don't Cry, and why did you want to bring this one in? I, just, I think this is actually my favourite album, Donuts by Jay Diller. I think it's it's easy for me to say this is it this is it for me and I I just love this whole album and I could have picked any of these tracks but this one in particular just has the feels why why do you like donuts so much what is it about it that sets it apart I guess it's a really it's just a really it's just an amazingly crafted album it's kind of the perfect album I think Jay Diller was just extraordinary at what he did he was the producer to end all other producers and it's such a great um it's fast and its transitions are really um they, they happen really quickly but each sample and each moment in it is luxurious and seems infinite in this really particular way lovely all right here we go it's jay little with don't cry on fbi 94.5 <laughs>
using a really great sample from the Escorts. That's Don't Cry from Jay Diller, brought in by my guest today, Astrid Larange, who is a doctor of Gertrude Stein. <laughs> yes. That's pretty weird. <laughs> yes. A doctor of Gertrude Stein. And why did you want to actually spend seven years of your life pursuing Gertrude Stein as, as a topic? I think that the easiest way to answer that is to just say that she keeps on being interesting to me or my interest in her endures um, over time. And I still find her right at the end of my PhD when I was going totally mad and was really exhausted. I would still laugh at at her strange sentences and take a lot of pleasure in, in what she does, even though despite my best intentions, I still have no idea what she's doing. Could you explain what Gertrude Stein is like to someone who might not have ever read a Gertrude Stein poem? Yes, she's so she was a poet and a well a writer broadly speaking. She wrote essays and novels and plays and poems and lectures and that sort of thing. She um American, she was American but she lived in Paris for her whole adult life and she was part of that early 20th century crew of modernist artists and ratbags. And <laughs> um the best way to describe her work is that it's um boring and I mean that in the most productive sense. It's quite repetitive. It's very difficult to understand. It uses very simple language and a fairly small vocabulary, but in different rather athletic combinations. And it seems to just go on forever with very little um, happening. Um, and I know that that makes sense. It's not really selling it very well. <laughs> yeah, not, not particularly. <laughs> I, but I'm really, I really like that aspect. I'm particularly interested in how that kind of work can be both utterly boring and totally exciting at the same time. Yeah. Um, it seems like she's being deliberately obscure. And I rem- remember I read something, uh, you wrote in the Cordite Poetry Review, they did an edition on Sydney and you said, um, experimental poetry is accused of being purposefully and defiantly obscure. And such a charge assumes that there's something being obscured in the first place. What do you mean? <laughs> big, qu- big question, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um yeah, well, we were talking about this just before the the show, and uh, we were talking about obscurity. And I think what I'm I like obscure things, but not because I'm it's you know not because I take pleasure in discovering hidden things or encoded things or things that no one else can see, but because I take obscurity to be more or less the primary condition of living. You know, I think our perception is um, full of obscurities, and the way we try and make sense of the world and talk to each other and form relationships is just the confluence of really obscure objects and ideas and events. And I think actually clarity and meaning and, and sense are, um, are, the, are, are sort of illusions or at least are, are, are well, uh, well-celebrated um, habits rather than things in themselves. So I like obscure things for that reason because I think everything is obscure and obscurity should be celebrated for that reason. Fabulous. And you got to go to Philly for your pursuit of the obscure poet Gertrude Stein. Uh, how did that How did that happen? Well, I wanted to go to the US because there's a number of contemporary Stein scholars over there that were doing things that I wanted to be in, involved with. And so I chose Philadelphia not so much because it was it's the centre of Steinianism, but because mostly because they have this. Kelly Ryder's house, um, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania, and it's this amazing institution, public institution, that has a lot of poetry events, and they have a great online archive of all their recordings, and I'd use that archive so much, I just had a sense of that space and what it was like and wanted to be there, so I chose Philly 
sort of just because of that, went there and then mm-hmm. discovered this, that it was the perfect place to be. And it's the cult of Stein. It's, yeah, a, it's a locality yeah. of the cult of Stein. What does that look like? What is a bunch of Gertrude Stein kind of, you know, almost cubist-seeming poetry? <laughs> just, what are those people like? Is there anything in common? Yeah, I mean, I met a lot of Steinians and, and I don't know, I guess we're all just sort of, I don't know, a bunch of bunch of particular a particular type of dork really is people <laughs> who like to sit around laughing at at Domstein things and talking about the talking about the I guess um inexhaustible um archive of possibility behind her work mm-hmm. and we've got a track here with a Phil- uh, Philadelphia story attached from Cocteau Twins yeah I first heard Cocteau Twins through my friend who's real name is Václav Lucy in Paris and he's a Wild. wonderful wonderful dear friend who claimed to have never heard any pop music in his life other than the Cocteau Twins which I'm sure is a total and utter lie um, but I really like this he used to look after me, he used to make me lunch to take to the library every day and this was the soundtrack to his generosity <laughs>
Tune into the drop on FBI for the best new hip hop, 50% Aussie. Hosted by Joyride, the most handsome guy to ever have a show on Monday nights at 9 pm. I'm a fan of Beyonce purely out of fear. Marinate on that for a second, ladies. His favorite thing uh, at parties is having beers poured on his head. The drop with Joyride. Mondays from 9 on FBI.
That track there is from Broadcast. And why'd you pick that one today, Astrid? Well, it's a great song, but also to keep with the theme, the uh, album title for that album is Tender Button, so another little Stein reference. Yeah, um, and I should, I should mention, just in case you've just tuned in, Astrid <laughs> Larange is a doctor of Gertrude Stein, who's a, uh, a poet from the... What, what, what era was she writing in primarily? Um. What what what, what era? Sorry. Sorry. Oh, uh, the modernist era. Yes, <laughs> and uh, that track was off Tender Buttons, and you've probably read that cover to cover many many times. What's something that you've taken away from it? I think the thing that I've taken away from it the most is how to write um, or how to appreciate a really good sentence and how to inhabit that vast space between two sentences which don't have any um, obvious relation to each other. Nice. And uh, the broadcast track, what what in particular takes your fancy about it? I like that whole album and I really like how strange and distorted that song is and I also like um, the weird scientific words in there. I really like Touch touch My Anatomy as a sexy proposition. It just <laughs> charms me, I guess. <laughs> I love it. And um, I, I guess I, when you were kind of, oh, no, this isn't America, this is in Australia, the Archive of gyne- Gynecological Ephemera, I think the first time I ever heard any of your readings live was at the State Library for Penguin Plays Rough, and you were talking about going through the Archive of Gynecological Ephemera. Why did you want to go through that? What did you find and what did you expect to find? Well, so that was an event run by Penguin Plays Rough at the State Library and writers were invited to go through the catalogue of the special collections at the State Library and to choose an archive to work with in order to produce a piece of writing, basically. So I was cruising through the catalogue and saw that archive and thought, oh, that's interesting. I have an ongoing, enduring interest in that era, that, in particular 19th century um, medical science and its relationship to very gendered notions of um, the mind, I guess. So and, so doctors basically going, vaginas and ladies and we don't understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like hysteria is, is the result of a tilted womb, so let's just untilt all these wombs. That sort of thing is <laughs> uh, as grotesque as it is, yeah. fascinating. And so I spent a couple of um, long days in the library and going through the digital archives and pulling out some particularly interesting correlations that were being made at this period by doctors between um, nutrition and excitement and the libido. So (laughs) I was really fascinated by these paranoid doctors telling hysterical women not to eat any spices or fruits or sugar or anything that would excite (laughs) the system lest they masturbate themselves to death or insanity. (laughs) And and what was their, uh, their cure for any of these things? Like what were their recommendations for a healthy woman? Things like, well, obviously, you know, not talking or speaking or reading or thinking or being engaged with, but also um, drinking like bone broth and milk tea and all these strange and like egg whips. And I thought it was kind of interesting too, because all these sort of meaty, um, meaty things, meaty broths and ephemeras that were the only things that could keep a woman <laughs> straight. <laughs> Do you think that that kind of, uh, you know, the the archive and what it shows about those old weird gendered quackery notions, do you reckon that's kind of a vibe that's still alive today or has it? have we just kind of left that behind and now can just laugh at it? No, no, I think it's very much still around. And actually at the end of that, that piece or at the end of that project, I had this strange um, ethical 
feeling or dilemma or I don't know what it was where I sort of thought we can't just dip into these archives and say, look at how insane these doctors were and look at how funny it is to think about um, the libido or sexuality or insanity in these terms um, as though the archive is just a vacation destination that we can drop in and out of. And I became really obsessed with this idea of like taking up these archival moments is also about being ethically and politically engaged with the present and with how these types of ideas persist in new forms. And yeah, I sort of, I was a bit disturbed by the end of it actually, because it wasn't the fascinating destination I thought it would be. It was actually something that, that really disturbed, disturbed my sense <laughs> of the world. Yeah. Sounds gravely depressing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we've got a track here from the Manhattans, Wish That You Were Mine. Came out in 1973. Why did you pick this one? So I wanted to play Shame by Freddie Gibbs and Madlib from their album that just came out recently, Piñata. And it's a great song, but it's just a bit too hectic for midday community radio. Um, but it samples this fantastic old song, which I love because it's a... It's uh, boredom is the topic of today's conversation, I guess, and I really like how bored this song sounds, even though it's about a great forbidden love. Mm-hmm. It's like love is boring when you can't have it. You know? <laughs> Could we have the same table we had yesterday?
sexy track there, brought in by my guest today, Dr. Astrid LaRange. Uh, I guess one of the reasons I find Astrid interesting, wanted to have her on the show today, is that she tends to dabble. I mean, you've done your PDHD, you brew beer, you edit, you make music, you're a poet and a teacher, and you run a philosophy reading group, and I could go on, but it would take all day. And like reading all of that stuff just burns me out. Do you ever burn yourself out? Yeah. In fact, I have had a flu that I've had for about a month, so I think I'm a classic burnout case. Oh, and to be clear, some of those things I don't do very well or even very often. Like, <laughs> I'm, in a, I'm technically in a band, but I'm by no means a musician. I just, I just lo- loiter around. But yeah, so I think your, your dabblingness is kind of one of the more interesting kind of... I don't know, I, I find that really interesting that you can like juggle so many things at once. And why do you juggle so many things at once? Is it something that you feel like you need to do as a creative person? or I think so. I don't think about it consciously too much. It just happens. And I think that, you know, the, to do anything requires knowing and doing other things. And I always take very seriously the things that I do in my life that aren't directly connected to writing work or teaching work or creative work. For me, walking and talking and eating meals and cooking and, you know, doing doing those kind of very everyday domestic things are totally important. And I take a lot of value from the sociality of doing those things with other people and with different people and throughout different times of the day. And I think it's just kind of a necessity. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's an economic necessity. You know, you have to have four different jobs at once at different parts of your life or you have to do things in order to do other things. And I think that's also a reality that lots of people relate to. Especially as a writer, I guess you can't necessarily uh, like assume that being a writer at the top of your game, like you're quite a well-known poet in Australia, you can't necessarily assume that that's going to set you up for life in the way that it might no. have once back in the day. It's not a profession in that mm. sense. It's something that you do and that you continue to do. It's a practice in a really literal sense. You practice at it every day mm-hmm. quite diligently, but there's always other things that you have to do and that you want to do. And they, yeah, they take different forms and they require different types of energies. And I find them, the fact that they take different energies is energetic in the sense that you, you can kind of feed off one energy to do another thing. And I think that's really important. You're right. And I, I think it's interesting, like the emerging writers idea, the fact that, you know, you're still you're still moving around and doing new things. And you said at the Emerging Writers Festival, you did the keynote there, uh, the binary of emerging established implies the transition from emergence to establishedness is in fact a kind of cessation. The emerging writer moves and the established writer settles. Do you think you're ever going to settle? Uh, well, I mean, t- I was setting that up as a binary that I disagreed with. So I think, and I, which is why I was saying all writers should strive to be continually mm-hmm. emerging, that emergence is probably the best state to be in in general. Um, and I think, I don't think, I hope not to, to settle in into some sort of habituated mode or into some particular one area, because I think especially, you know, our moment is so fast and so informationally rich and there's so much going on that I think you gotta you gotta kind of keep moving but I also at the same time I think it's really important to take moments where it's not just pure flux and chaos all the time that there are these moments where forms and formations and stoppages and little resistant nubs are formed I think that's Mm -hmm. equally important I think this is kind of a sounds like a philosophical position you've taken at some point does it have any relation to the poetry that that you're interested in? I think so, definitely. I think the the poetry that I'm interested in is, I guess, trying to speak to um, the way that language comes into the world today and how, how fast and how thick and how 
completely dense and unreadable it is in terms of scale. Um, you know, the new the new epic poem is just straight up data, data flow. And I think that that's something that is especially interesting in, 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 in terms of how we can adapt our notion of literary criticism or reading habits or just ideas of the literary um, in a really basic sense. All right. And we've got another track that you've brought in today, Eddie Marcon. And why this one? I don't I don't know a lot about this band. They're Japanese and I like them a lot. Um, and it's, um, well, my fella's name is Eddie and this is his favourite band at the moment. So I thought this was a bit of a love song dedication. Because <laughs> we do that here on FBI, <laughs> sending your love song dedications in for the next show because Nathan Harris is going to be in next. Maybe he'll make some of them happen. As for now, this goes out to Eddie. Woo. Kushari on FBI 94.5.
is. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that in, Astrid. It's lovely, isn't it? And that was Eddie Marcon from Japan. Track name is, I think it's pronounced Kusari. Gorgeous. And uh, yes, my guest today is Dr. Astrid Larange, who uh, is a doctor of Gertrude Stein, a poet, (laughs) and many, many other things. And uh, she she wrote an introduction to Sydney in the Cordite Poetry Review, which um, because they had an issue that was about Sydney. And I kind of wanted to ask you, I mean, what do you think is poetic about Sydney? I don't think of Sydney as being a particularly poetic place, but... You know. It's a really weird place. I think I think about how odd Sydney is all the time, especially when you leave and come back. And I think also compared to Melbourne, which is such a self-assured place, Melbourne has such a particular type of identity that seems to be really um, effortlessly performed by the whole city all the time. Yeah. When I go there, I'm seduced by that. But I also find Sydney to be... Um, equally seductive for the opposite reason, that it seems to just be this place of total amnesia or something, that everything is disorganised and there's no clear lines of communication and things are all kind of wet and sodden and there's little pockets of forest and then these strange sandstone bedrocks. And I don't know, it just seems to be a place where nothing can nothing can hang around long enough to be remembered and yet everything stays, you know, everything is, everything that's ever happened is there somewhere, but kind of hidden or I don't know. It's, it's just, so I think it is poetic in that sense. There's a lot here. There's a lot of its past and its history and its formation that's completely unsettled and um, haunted or something. But there's also a lot of interesting things that are right there to be found and to be looked at and to be pointed at. And I think that's, it's poetic aspect. And did you miss it when you were overseas in Philly? Sometimes, but it would be in a really weird way. I would suddenly think of places that I'd never even really been. It was almost as if I was missing a version of Sydney that I knew through the distribution of images of Sydney. So, you know, for example, I'd be like, man, how beautiful is Balmoral? But I've probably been to Balmoral once in the last 20 years. And so it was this very strange type of homesickness that was actually, I was quite happy to be out of Sydney at that particular time for various reasons. But um, yeah, I would miss, I guess, its spectacular nature. And when I was showing it to um, my mother and mother and sister-in-law who are from the States, I was I would take them around and I would say, you know, here's Bondi Beach. And then as I was pointing it out and showing it to them, I'd just freak out and say, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. Look at this place. <laughs> and they, were really, they were like, don't you live here? And I was like, yeah, but I, I just never see these luscious tracks of it, you know. Um. Why why did you you said that you kind of were glad to be out of Sydney at that time is there any particular reason I think just I'd been here for about 10 years and I'd been I think I just really wanted to have that experience of leaving that I saw so many of my friends doing um and I didn't grow up in Sydney um and so I'd made it this I really aggressively made it my home and then at a certain point just needed a bit of distance and needed to go away and it seemed like the right time time to disengage yeah exactly well, we've got a chance to disengage for a bit. We've got a five-minute, six-minute track. We can probably fit it in. What do you reckon? Yeah. I think it's the end of Out of the Box today. Thank you so much, Astrid Lange, for coming on the show and bringing some amazing tracks. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. And Nathan Harris is going to be coming in, taking over for Beth, and uh, he's going to bring you two hours of music at lunch, all good stuff. And uh, this last track that you've brought in, can you tell us a bit about it? Sure. So it's a track by Felt called Cathedral. And 
Um, I really like it. I was initially really into this band purely because one of their albums is called Let the Snakes Crinkle Their Heads to Death, which I think is (laughs) just the best album title. Not that I, I mean, I like snakes. I don't want them to actually die through crinkling, but I really like that (laughs) album title. And then I love this song in particular because it just seems like the mix is a bit weird. It seems like I often forget there's vocals in it and it just kind of, it's, it's so distant. It's like, but, you know, I, I just kind of like it. I like it. It's ghostly. All right. Fabulous. You're listening to FBI 94.5 Out of the Box is over for another day, but you can check it out on On Demand. If you go to the FBI website, it'll be up in about half an hour. And all of the tracks we've played today, all of the excellent tracks we've played today, thank you, Astrid, are going to be listed there on our programs and playlists page. My name's Ash Bertabez. Ash Lawrence, thanks so much. Thank you.
box. Out of the box. Out of the box. Out of the box. Meet people through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI.